Today's question is, what does feminism mean to you? I am a feminist because of the unconventional women who came before me and because of those who have no option but to conform. I am a feminist because I need to live life on my own terms. I am a feminist because I believe that people should have the right to choose. I'm feminist because I think everyone should be able to decide who they are and what they become. Hi, my name is Aisha Salahuddin and I like girls. This is a podcast about African women and the different experiences life throws at us just for being women. Just like you heard from the women at the start of this episode, feminism strikes a different chord in different people. Feminism is a range of social movements, political movements, and ideologies that aim to define and establish the political, economic, personal, and social equality of the sexes. Do you want me to keep reading? No, Siri. I'm good. So, Siri gave us the general definition of feminism, right? But many women define theirs differently, based on religion, location, or just life experiences. Some people also find feminism controversial. But this episode is not about that. It's about understanding the different experiences that shape people's feminism. A quick warning, this episode makes a couple of references to cases of sexual assault. My name is Mona Altahawi. I'm a feminist author. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I live in New York City, and this is my declaration of faith. Fuck the patriarchy. Okay, at some point, we'll get to why Mona starts all her conversations with fuck the patriarchy. So I was born in Egypt in 1967. Uh, to, I was the, the first child, my parents' first child, but both my parents come from very large families. My mother is one of 11 and my father is one of eight. One of my aunts died, but she was alive still when I was born. Some of my fondest, earliest memories are these massive family gatherings that we would have, you know, especially for Eid or for birthdays or for other occasions. So I have so many aunts and uncles. I've lost count of my cousins. So that's something that I definitely associate with being born and raised in Egypt. And we lived in Egypt until I was seven. And Mona's family house had this balcony that presented views from across the noisy streets. So when I was four, when I was four years old in Cairo, one day, uh, actually almost every day I would sit, I would stand on a stool on the balcony of my family's apartment and talk across the street with a friend of mine who was also about four or five years old, another girl who also stood on the balcony, you know, just across the street. And we would sit and chat, you know, like little, little girls do. This particular day, something dreadful happened. And one afternoon, a car pulled up right under my balcony and a man came out and he pulled out his penis. And he pointed at his penis and he beckoned at me and my friend and like beckoned for us to come down. Even as a kid, Mona recognized that the man's behavior was wrong. So I was holding my little slipper in my little four-year-old hand and I waved it at this man because I knew he was doing something wrong. And I believed fully that little four-year-old Mona, who was so short, she had to stand on a chair so that she could look above the balcony to see her friend. She was waving her slipper at this man because she fully believed that she could terrify him and make him leave. 
Now, eventually he did leave because he gave up because neither my friend nor I went downstairs and God knows what would have happened if we'd gone downstairs. That was the first time Mona had to deal with sexual harassment, but it wasn't her last. When she turned 15, she moved to Saudi Arabia with her parents and her family decided to go for Hajj, the annual Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca. Hajj is the largest annual pilgrimage in the world. It happens in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and for Muslims like Mona's family, it's a big deal. Saudi estimates that 2.5 million pilgrims attend Hajj from different parts of the world every year. So Mecca is usually pretty packed. During Hajj, worshippers perform a series of rituals aimed at worshipping God and seeking favour. It's a lot of humming and praying and circling the Kaaba, this cubical black building in the middle of Masjid al-Haram. Okay, so Masjid al-Haram is the largest mosque in the world. Back to Mona. I was 15 years old. It was about a month after we moved. We went to Hajj, we went to Mecca, which is, you know, is Islam's holiest site. And we went to perform the pilgrimage, Hajj, which is the fifth pillar of Islam. And it was the first time in my life that I wore what we call hijab, which is I was covered, everything except for my face and my hands were covered. And I was sexually assaulted twice. Once by a man who was behind me during the tawaf, which is when we go around the Kaaba, which is part of the ritual. So I'm assuming he was a fellow pilgrim, or perhaps he was a man who just went into the Grand Mosque uh, to sexually assault women and girls. And the second time was by a Saudi policeman as we were embracing the Blackstone, which is a tradition that is also part of the pilgrimage ritual. And that was such a traumatic moment in my life. Mona was deeply hurt. Mecca is one of Islam's holy pilgrimage sites. It's this exhilarating place to be, to worship. But even that was not enough to protect her from abuse. So I burst, I froze and I burst into tears when the man during Tawaf did this to me. And that's a perfectly normal reaction to sexual assault. It's very normal to freeze and burst into tears. It was so crowded, so I used that as an excuse to explain to my parents why I was crying. So, um, I, you know, I felt really, really ashamed. I had done nothing to be ashamed of, but I felt dirty and I felt full of shame. And again, I had done nothing to feel those things, but this is what sexual assault does, you know. Mona spoke about this terrifying experience first in 2013, and then in 2015 in her book, Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution. Finally, in 2018, she started this massive social media movement, hashtag MosqueMeToo, you know, like the hashtag MeToo movement. This movement documented stories of hundreds of Muslim women from across the world speaking up about being sexually assaulted while performing Hajj. Let's start using hashtag MosqueMeToo to share. And so I said, if you're a Muslim woman and if you can speak about this, because I know how long it took me to speak about this, under use Hashtag Mosque Me Too and share your experience. And so many Muslim women around the world began to say hashtag Mosque Me Too and share their experience. Five days after this, I was so overwhelmed with these awful stories. After the break, we'll go back, like way before Mona's book or before the Mosque Me Too movement, to find out how all these experiences shaped the person she is today.
Everyone who is a feminist has a defining moment or a series of defining moments. For Mona, she was a feminist way before she even knew what it meant. And that's really when I became a feminist. Very soon after being sexually assaulted twice during Hajj, I became a feminist without having the word feminist. But I just knew that there was something really wrong. She hated that she was constantly harassed and assaulted by men. It made her angry. And that anger became the fuel for her feminism. I've had other men expose themselves to me. At, you know, once a man stopped me to ask me the time as I was getting into the metro in Cairo. And I looked at my watch to tell him the time. And I realized that he was not only exposing himself to me, he was masturbating as he was asking me this. This is just so fucking disgusting. So it was just this buildup, this buildup of like, what the fuck is happening here? How are these men doing this? And so, and how are they able to get away with it? And so the more it happened to me, the, the, the more I discovered my anger again. She found the word she was looking for in an unexpected way. And where I, I found the word for it, when I was 19 years old, at the, the library of my university in Saudi Arabia. And there was a bookshelf full of books and journals, feminist journals. I don't know why these journals were there because there's no women's and gender studies in my university in Saudi Arabia or anywhere in Saudi Arabia at that time. But I'm really glad those journals were there. And those journals not only taught me the word feminism and, and helped me understand what patriarchy is, but they also had writings by feminists from my own cultural and religious background. Mona's research made her understand the patriarchy. It's the system that allows men to hold the primary power in the world, you know, controlling property and dominating roles in pretty much every industry that you can think of. And I know now that what it's meant all along, even if I didn't define it as such all along, but now I see it, it, it means the destruction of patriarchy. It means dismantling patriarchy wherever it exists. And basically, patriarchy exists everywhere. In Cairo, in London, in Mecca, in Jeddah, in New York City, everywhere Cairo, uh, um, patriarchy exists. So feminism has always been for me about the destruction of patriarchy. But at different stages of my life, it was about taking on different aspects of patriarchy. 19-year-old Mona's definition of feminism is different from 53-year-old Mona's. So there was a time where I would, I would define feminism as equality, you know, equality between men and women. But as I've evolved and as my understanding of the complexity of feminism and the, the need for it to be complex in order to destroy patriarchy, the more I now say I want something that is much bigger than equality and that thing that's bigger than equality is liberation. Let's play an interesting game. Imagine an octopus and the head of the octopus is the patriarchy. Its different tentacles are the different ways the patriarchy helps to promote male dominance. One tentacle can be white supremacy, so that's definitely an application in the United States, for example. Another tentacle is capitalism in many countries around the world. Another tentacle is misogyny in all countries around the world. Another one is ageism, again, all over the world. Ableism, all over the world. Homophobia, transphobia in most parts of the world. So all of those tentacles work together to keep patriarchy alive. Sometimes two or three of those tentacles are squeezing you, sometimes all of them. So in order to be truly free, 
To achieve liberation from patriarchy, we must always think of the person who is squeezed and suffocated by all of those tentacles. Because when that person is free, we are all free. Remember Siri's definition of feminism? Yeah, Mona is saying that her feminism is much more than equality. She does not aspire to be equal to men. Because in some cases, men can also be tied down by the patriarchy. She wants complete freedom. Mona used to be a journalist and she's currently a writer. So she has written a ton of articles about feminism and women's rights. Her most recent book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, highlights the different ways women can fight the patriarchy. And that's where I came up with the seven sins. Anger, attention, profanity, ambition, power, violence, and lust. Remember at the start of this conversation, when Mona declared, fuck the patriarchy. I want to quickly, you know, go back and talk about something. Um, And it's that you start literally everything with fuck the patriarchy, right? I think, (laughs) like, how? where is that thing? How did that start for you? Well, I think it started when um, I began, you know, I noticed that in my speeches and during my book tour or whenever I gave lectures, people would react to my saying fuck. They would either laugh or they would gasp or they would applaud fuck. And sometimes women would come up to me afterwards and say, it's so liberating for me to see a woman um, at a microphone or on stage use curse words and to say fuck because whenever I swear, uh, she would say, uh, you know, people shame me for it or they tell me it's unprofessional. A lot of people were uncomfortable with Mona swearing a lot. So she kind of stretched it just to piss them off even more. And so I began to say it over and over. And then and then I began to realize that, you know what, this should be something that I should do everywhere I go. Because I realized that I was not supposed to begin my lectures by saying fuck the patriarchy. And the reason was many. It was because I was a woman. And women are supposed to be nice and polite. It was because I was a woman of color and women of color have even more burdens on them to be nice and polite because we have to be respectable and we have we have so many hoops that we have to go through in order to be considered as professional or to be taken seriously, you know, as white women who have their own problems as women. She's right. There's this weird expectation that women are meant to be civil or gentle in comparison to their male counterparts. According to a report in Sage Journals, these expectations are as a result of gender stereotypes. We are fucking done. No more polite, no more nice, no more respectable, because those things don't work. They just shrink us. And it's time for us to expand, not to shrink. It's painful to know that Mona's feminism stemmed from constant sexual assault and that it took her a long time to find her voice. But now that she has it, she's never going to stop talking about the need to beat the patriarchy. Sometimes, literally... In 2018, I'm in a tank top in jeans in Montreal, Canada, at kind of basically the pilgrimage for secular space, you know, the club. Nothing holy, everything secular. And I'm I'm dancing with my beloved, we're having a great time, and I feel a hand on my ass, and I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Why is this not stopping? (laughs) So in this time, I managed to find who the man was because he was the only person walking across the dance floor, not dancing. I ran up to him. I pulled at his shirt from behind. He wasn't expecting me, of course, to fight back. He fell and I sat on him 
and I punched and I punched and I punched. So many times I lost count and every time I punched him, I said, don't you ever touch a woman like that. Don't you ever fucking touch a woman like that. And every time I, wanted, I, I thought, okay, I'm done. I was like, I'm not done. And I kept punching and punching. And when I was finally done, he stood up and he made eye contact with me because I'm convinced he wanted to see who is this woman who just beat the fuck out of me. Okay, after the break, we'll talk about how a certain US president inspired one woman's feminism. Uh, hi, my name is Felicia. I go by the stage name Feli Speaks. I'm a spoken word artist, performance artist, and uh, playwright. I live in Ireland. I grew up in Ireland, uh, but I'm from Nigeria. Felicia had a very interesting childhood. Her family moved around a lot. Oh gosh, uh, I suppose growing up like for me was quite different because I left Nigeria when I was about maybe six and a half years old. Um, and I lived with my mom and dad in France for about, I don't know, nine months, uh, 10 months or so. And then my mom and I moved to Ireland when I was about eight. Um, you had a lot of diverse cultures that you had adapted to. You had like a language that you understood, uh, many languages that you understood. So depending on who you were talking to or where you were, you could like sort of adapt based on all those, I guess, diverse cultures. Would I be correct to say that? Absolutely. I think I learned how to adapt really quickly. Even though she was young at the time, she has fond memories of living in France with her parents. My dad always had people over in the house um, and he always did this thing of like just taking in um, refugees that were like, you know, on their way up, you know, like kind of like a house was a little bit of like a halfway bust up for people that he cared for. Um, so there was always this hum in the evening of conversation um, and just banter. And I always enjoyed that. When Felicia was eight, she moved to Longford. It's a low-lying country in Ireland, famous for its agriculture. She moved with her mom. Her dad stayed back in France to wrap up some unfinished business. I'm not sure what I sounded like then, but I can imagine coming fresh from France, this um, eight-year-old with a mix of a French accent and Nigerian accent and probably a hint of Yoruba in there speaking English. And they're like, what is this? What is going on? So they put me in extra English class. And I think I only lasted in there three months before they realized that like, I could read properly. <laughs> Felicia enjoyed reading, writing, and telling stories. She also participated in church activities a lot. Um, I suppose in Longford, there was a lot of like, not a lot, but there was a couple of like Nigerian churches. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was a lot. And there's a few RCCG, RCCG churches. I went to one of them. And so building my personality as a teenager, I was a teenager that was heavily involved in church and youth activities and youth secretary this and writing a Nigerian version of Mary or Joseph's story, you know, things like that, because it wasn't long before she noticed something odd. I always questioned why there was always so many women in church and hardly any dads. I think I was just questioning the fact that there was like with the increasing turmoil of not having my dad at home, 
I suppose I was questioning every time I went to church why there were so many mothers and so little fathers in like in a ratio. Um, and that was enough for me. Felicia's dad was barely at home. You know, from his constant travels, it made us start asking hard questions like, is it normal for dads to be barely present with their families? And why were women expected to raise kids alone? She didn't particularly get answers to her questions, but she knew something about that gender dynamic did not feel right. Like with Mona, Felicia initially didn't think that any of her burning questions were related to feminism. Um, I think, like many people... Um, I had been a feminist before I knew the terms and how to use them. Um, but I think when I probably became quite conscious of it, it wasn't until maybe I was about 20 or 21, which sounds so late, maybe 19, 20, 21. That was like in the middle of college, really started really sinking in. Um, I started reading a little bit more and I had this one moment that really did it for me. That one moment was in early 2017 at this bank Felicia worked at. I was just, it was right after Trump's election and I had heard about, because they played the radio like in the office or whatever. So I was listening in and I'd heard about um, this women's rally and women's march um, happening uh, all over America or something I'm not sure but it was it was supposed to be a big deal and it was huge people came out in numbers and it was an amazing moment because women were really championing their rights and she's talking about the 2017 mass protest against Trump hundreds of thousands of women filled the streets of major American cities denouncing him as the new US leader this was after his inauguration and at first, I took in the moment. I was like, oh, this is a really good thing. Then I started thinking about like, oh, you know, there's a certain type of woman that can actually, you know, afford the time, the health, the the, the child care, the time off work or whatever to go out to this kind of rally on a weekday. And I started thinking a little bit more about privilege and the type of women that can use their voice and can speak and can be advocated for. And I started thinking about all the women that, we maybe speak for in small numbers, but we never come out in such a large crowd for. Felicia liked that women were marching against a misogynist president, but she was painfully aware that this march did not extend to minorities in other parts of the world. And so while I was thinking about all these things in fast-paced mode, um, I got really emotional, I got really upset, and I wrote a poem about it. And I... I guess I didn't even realize the gravity of what I was writing, but I felt like I would be more than happy to um, amplify those voices, whether I experienced their pain personally or not. Um, I understood the importance of the feminist issues that we were fighting here in the West, but I also realized how far behind or how far removed uh, the West is from the conversations we're having in like in African countries, in Asian countries about like women's bodies, women's advocacy, women's rights. Um, just 
yeah, I, I just was alarmed that we were not um, talking about these things with more urgency. Felicia wanted more matches tailored to people of color. She understood that the fight for women's rights in, say, Zambia or Kenya would be different from the fight in the US or the UK. She didn't feel enough people were tailoring their feminism to solve the needs of ethnic minorities. Good evening, everyone. My name is Felicia. I go by the stage name Feli Speaks, and I am beyond honored to be here in front of everybody. Um, my poem is called How About Us, and it discusses the severe inequalities women go through who aren't part of the West and who also deserve to be marched for. And who will march for us? For desert flowers who have pieces of their pleasures parted from them, held down by mothers with shaky hands who fight, but with blades of protection, stomping out growing sprouts, destroying their own. And who will march for us? For cloaked women who have been served the sentence. I remember doing this and getting this piece off my chest and it felt like I had just exhaled something that was on my shoulders for the longest time. And it was like a truly beautiful moment. I felt so like overjoyed to have done it. Felicia was not born a feminist and she didn't really set out to be one. Her experience and the things she noticed as a kid put her on this path. I think in the whirlwind of those moments, like in sharing that poem, I think I'd started using the language actively by then. I think I started, I'd already started calling myself a feminist. What's my feminism about? I think more than anything, it's all this kindness. Um, um, I think my feminism is about extending kindness to women, regardless of their anything, their ethnicity, their race, their whatevers. Um, I believe heavily in just extending love um, to women in as many places as possible. I think I'm quite biased <laughs> towards women. Felicia no longer works in a bank. She's now a full-time poet and playwright. She uses her work to promote feminism. And then I suppose within my writing, it's the, it's the act of revealing, constantly revealing the woman's life, um, her, the nuances of her, of her existence without her being either the saint or the whore um, or the saint or the sinner. It's, it's showing um, the, complexi the complexities and the nuances of what a woman can be or what a woman's experience can be and not being shy about the gritty bits or the things that are pleasurable or the things that are taboo. Um, so yeah, showing the full scope of what a woman is and extending as much kindness as possible. She says her feminism is not necessarily grand or earth-shattering, but she's proud of it and it makes her who she is. While feminism has that general definition that has to do with equal access to opportunities for men and women, many women define theirs differently. Like with Mona and Felicia, their feminism was shaped by their life experiences. What I'm getting from all of this is that feminism is not a one-size-fits-all concept. It's whatever you make it out to be. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Like Girls. If you want to get in touch, visit ilikegirls.co. 
Also, if you like this episode, please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. This episode is produced by me, Aisha Salahuddin. Audio engineering is by Mo Isu. Rahina Salhassan is our associate producer. Fuad Lawal is our editor. Mira Momoyele is our graphic designer. And our theme music is by Bangs with a double G. The other music you heard throughout this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Eruke Onowosa and Somto Uyana for their contribution to this episode. And to our partners, Radio Now 95.3 FM, Newswire Nigeria, and Fem Africa. Okay, I'll catch you all on the next episode.